Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm coming to you from Sweet Recording in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, Sweet Recording is a great studio. They do podcast, they do video cast. They will actually come and do a streaming event for you, and they actually build physical studios. If you want a studio built, Joe Ganjemi and his partner, Matthew Passy, will come out and do it for you. They're great guys, so hit them up. Send them an email at hello at sweetrecording.com, and that's sweet, S-U-I-T-E. Anyway, we have a great show today. You know, it's funny. When I was living in L.A., I was hanging at my one of my many <laughs> local watering holes, and I was talking to my friend Jason Guile, who was uh, working for ESP Guitars. And I asked him, I said, hey, hey, there's a guy from my hometown. I want to know if you know who he is. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know. And I said his name. I know him, and he's a monster. Now, people, in, in the crime world and TV, monsters are bad. But in the music world, monster is like the best compliment. <laughs> and, and when I moved back, back here to uh, New Jersey from L.A., I would go on Facebook and what's up Voorhees, what's up Cherry Hill. And when people were looking for a music teacher, this guy's name always came up. So it's amazing that, you know, over his his life, he's played music. He's had his hills and valleys. He went from being on big stage to teaching kids. And my guest is, and he's in a band, great band called Heaven's Edge. My guest is Reggie Wu. How you doing, Reggie? Great. Thank you for having me. How are you? Good, good. Before we talk about music, I want to talk to you about your love of cheesesteaks, because I see you posted on Facebook. <laughs> You're a thin guy. I mean, most people eat, eat like, what, 10 cheesesteaks a week? I mean, no, not at all. But not what, at all. Did you always, because we're both from Cherry Hill, we probably both started going to Big John's. But Big John's was it. That was your, I was just about to say that. That was my introduction to great cheesesteaks. No, no, have you, I mean, have you always loved eating them? I mean, it's like, I, I, always, I miss them. I, I always loved them. I don't know why. It's just something that, you know, every, it, it's funny when we were on the road every day, each band member would get to pick a place for breakfast and everybody, you know, would be like, you know, Denny's, IHOP, whatever. I'd be like, we got to find a cheesesteak place. <laughs> and the band would just dread my day because it's cheesesteaks for breakfast, you know? But uh, yeah, I just love the Big John's and uh, it's just a quick, fast meal that's delicious and I'm always on the search for the top cheesesteaks around. That's great. You know, that's like a hobby. You know, people need hobbies and it's it's like a cheesesteak. And I'm the same way. Like, you know, when I lived in, on the West Coast, there was a place that opened in Burbank called Philly's Best. And they actually had a good cheesesteak. Oh, good. One time they were doing an Eagles game. They had been shown because the games were at 10 a.m. Everyone found out they were making scrapple sandwiches and everybody went down there from the Philadelphia area in L.A. And it sold out. Like the, oh. the guy's like, holy crap, I got scrapple and it's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have that Philly scrapple. I love a scrapple sandwich. <laughs> so, okay, let's get to you. Let's get to your music. When, well, well before, I want to ask you this, and we're going to talk about how your career started. But I've always thought about talking to a musician about this. Now, you're, you know, I know you're a humble guy, but you're, you're in, in considered and very respected in the industry as a great guitarist. Oh, that's that's nice. And I've always thought, you know, when an athlete is a great athlete, they're born. It's inherent. Now, for you, I know, I believe your mom was a musician. Do you think that your talent was inherent and then you had to work hard at it? Or do you think that people can just work hard and become great at something when it comes to music? I think anybody can play music. It's just what level you take it to. Um, in my household growing up, it was the law. My mom's classical piano teacher. You know, she started all of us three, four years old on the piano. Um, so we had no choice about it. Now, my sister, you know, who's, 12 years younger than me, she's the prodigy of the family. At age 12, she was um, touring the world, Spain, Norway, Italy. We have 
footage of her playing the piano with like a full orchestra. She's just a natural. I think I'm more the person that really has to work at it, you know, and I work really hard. And yet I now that I'm teaching, I can see like some of these kids, they just pick it up like that. I'm like, wow, you know, that was fast. I'm not one of them, unfortunately. I'm I'm somebody that really had to work hard. Now, now, what made you get into guitar? Into guitar? Because you know, a lot of times, like anyone, you know, if 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 your father's an accountant or your mother's an accountant, they want you to be an accountant. Your mom right. was a piano player, so she probably really wanted to play. Have you play the piano because you started at a young age? But at what point did you sit there and say, "Man, I want to play guitar"? And then at what point did you say, "I want to play metal"? Uh, well, I come from the classical background, so this will lead into it. But uh, at but third grade, fourth grade, you got to pick a second instrument. I took the violin and I just would always play the violin like this. And then we went to the Woodcrest Shopping Center and saw the song remains the same. Remember there used to be a little movie theater there? I saw Animal and, House. Uh, I saw Animal House there. Well, yeah, it was it, it, right in that. Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> yes. And uh, that was just like, I was just like, that is what I want to do. I went home and, you know, uh, well, first of all, after, after playing the, the, the violin like a guitar finally my parents got me a little guitar and um you know it, it just i it just grabbed like guitar just was my instrument i could just tell i just loved it they knew i loved it after i saw that movie i came home and put my guitar down to my knees as far as i could get it because jimmy page had it down to his knees and uh that's all i wanted to do but that was when i knew that's what i wanted to do but coming from the classical background my favorite band growing up was deep purple and Richie Blackmore and John Lord had that classical thing going on. You know, a lot of their uh, solos, like Highway Star, it has a little classical bass in there. And um, that's why I just gravitated towards um, Deep Purple growing up. And, um, you know, got to see Rainbow. Never got to see Deep Purple. And it's funny, I'm reading a Led Zeppelin book now. I never got to see Zeppelin. I had tickets twice for Zeppelin. Um, the first time Robert Plant's son died, I remember. Got canceled. The second time, uh, John Bonham died. So never got to see Zeppelin unfortunately. But um, those the, those were the bands that shaped me saying that's what I got to do for the rest of my life is play guitar. Now, it's funny because I, I, I think you're a year ahead of me in high school. And I, re- I remember you because you had long hair and everyone said, oh, that guy's a really good guitar player. And I remember stuff like that. And that's back to high school because, wow. but you know, think about East, like my brother and sister were in a marching band, you know, East had a very great marching band. But there wasn't a lot of bands like in our, that I remember in our high school. But, you know, how did you start forming bands in high school? Because in East, as I said, it seemed like, I don't know, for some reason it didn't seem like kids were into, like, jamming at East. I may be wrong, but it just seemed like they would join well, theater or the marching band. But how did you start forming bands at East? I always said Cherry Holise had the greatest musicians. Um, they were older than me. A lot of them were older than me. Um, that And Silas with Dave Close and Joe DeLuca and John Sherry, just like mind-blowing musicians, Bob Charns on guitarist on guitar. Uh, there was a band called Flight with the Natale brothers. Uh, John Sherry played with them. Maria DiGiacomo was the singer for them. Um, so they paved way. And then, you, of course, you have the Stanzalist brothers. I don't know if you remember Mike and Mark Stanzalist. Mike went on to uh, go to uh, Berkeley School of Music and be- became a very accomplished bass player. So I felt like they led the way. Brian Bogosong, you know, Tim Karcher and I just looked up John Young. I looked up to all these guys that were older than me, and that's what really shaped. I felt so, in a sense, I feel like Cherry Hill East did have a nice um, jam 
basis. And then they had these um, talent shows, coffee house, open mics, whatever you want to call them. And then it would give everybody a chance to to play at the school. And we'd go see Flight or Versailles and we'd be like, like, holy moly, like, look at these guys. They're doing Yes, they're doing Genesis. Versailles was all original. I was like, wow, listen to these originals that they're writing. And uh, so I really feel like Cherry Hill East had an amazing set of musicians that led the way for me, you know, and I looked up to all these guys and um, still do to this day. They're amazing. And a lot of them are still playing. Joe DeLuca, you know, you, he's still out there jamming. It makes me happy. Steve Smith. Oh, here's a great story. Eighth grade, uh, back school, they had a talent show and it was Phil Swift and Steve Smith. And they did Purple Haze at the back middle school concert. And it just blew my mind. And I always thank Steve because Steve was, um, you know, he, I was like, dude, you're the reason I played the guitar. You're one of the reasons. But it's funny, Phil, who I reconnected these days, is now the Flex Seal guy. And, uh, you know, he's made his fortune. And so and me and my wife were down in um, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I'm like, we had just done a commercial for Phil, did all the music for one of his commercials. And uh, we got to gather down there and you should see his house like holy moly he's done he's done well and this was just a shore house you know i was just like holy cow phil you got all this from flex seal but um that eighth grade back school concert doing purple haze was a life changer as well it's amazing you know because in my other podcast cooper talk i talk a lot of older musicians who their life changing was seeing the Beatles and you know we're the same age so the Beatles we were we weren't watching the Beatles we weren't watching Ed Sullivan and I always oh. wonder how musicians you know you see that so you so you're at East now how did Heaven's Edge come about because then I want to hear the story because you guys had the videos and the album and and you had the big hair and and yeah. I see actually you also came up when I had interviewed the late uh Jeff Labard and he had said uh, on the Cinderella audition, he's like, all the best players were there, Reggie Wu and this. And I was like, damn, man, giving Cherry Hill some credit. Yeah. But, so how, how did how did the band, how because that was the band that you you broke ice. Was was that like your first really serious band? Yes, but it was, a, I, um, Heaven's Edge did not come up about till I was 26. So those years between high school and coming right out of high school, I knew I was going to play. That's all I wanted to do. Um, it's very sad. My dad... Back in the old days, they would give you a check, and I guess it would get returned to you know the person whose name was on the check. And they had me apply for you know five colleges. I never applied, you know. So I had these checks in my house. My dad's just like, "Why have we ever gotten these checks returned to us?" And that's how they found out that I that I did not apply for college. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And um, had I had to do it all over again, I would have definitely changed it because they were some lean years in there. You know, it's like. I tell Lisa, I'm not proud of it, but I remember, um, you know, shoplifting at ShopRite to try to, you know, a can of tuna fish and a box of macaroni and cheese and, you know, just uh, do anything to survive. Um, those years were tough. Um, were you playing? But were you playing I was playing then? in a million bands. I moved to California uh, because at that time, Sunset Strip was starting to take off. I'm like, I'm headed out there. I remember um, Ronnie Kayfield headed out to uh, London to start a band with the bass pipe for UFO. And um, I'm like, oh, maybe I should move. Because at that time, Phil Duffy was not happening. I mean, we had Hall and Oates. And I think the Hooters, Hooters were about to break. But from a hard rock scene, there was no um, hard rock acts. I mean, I was all like Sunset Strip or the UK. And so I moved out to California, failed miserably, came home with my tail between my legs, um, and just played in a... I played in a band called Buff the Musket that eventually became Ivory Tower, White Fox, and just 
paying my dues, playing wherever I could, whenever I could. And then I saw a network. They were the top um, cover band in this area. And they also mixed in originals. Boy, were they good. They were my one of my favorite bands. We used to go see them. And I'd be like, that bass player is phenomenal. Like, he's just he's just got it. He's just got it. The blonde hair, the moves, the look. Great singer, great bass player. And um, through his now wife, Jeannie, his girlfriend then, um, I passed her a demo tape of a song. I said, do you think Mark would want to write for me? Never in a million years did I think he would leave Network. He wouldn't. He, why would he leave Network? They were, they were the biggest band in this area, and um, we hit it off right away. We knew the chemistry was great. I think the first 15, 17 songs we wrote, you know, skin to skin. These are songs we're having. Skin to skin, find another way. Some of our best songs were just right there. So we knew we had chemistry. Um, Mark made the decision to leave Network. So he's going from a band that's making thousands of dollars a week to nothing because when you're an original band in the philadelphia area um you don't make any money you know i used to go down we used to play like this little club you know dobbs on south street and we go around the corner and do you remember when delaware avenue i guess it was called had all those clubs maui and like all those stuff oh, yeah and yeah you'd go there and there'd be like thousands of people just going crazy for these cover bands meanwhile we just played dobbs in front of 25 people you know and uh but the original music got no respect and god bless him but bill Haig opened a place had a place called the galaxy and uh in somerdale and he was the only guy along with bonnie's that would allow the original music in jersey and thank god for him and um he his every weekend the top band would get to headline and at that time it was cinderella it was just so we got to watch cinderella every weekend to hone their chops and um and that's funny when uh, they finally got signed through Bon Jovi to the record company. The record company had told them that, uh, very sadly, that you need to change the guitar player and drummer, who were phenomenal. Michael Kelly Smith and Tony Dester, they were amazing. I have no idea why the record company would make them change, but that's the audition that me, Jeff, and Snake from uh, Skid Row all went to. And Jeff got the gig, rightly so, because he fit the band perfect. And uh, didn't I did not see Dave uh, Sabo audition, but I heard he, he did great. But um, so Cinderella blows the doors open. Before we know it, they're on tour with David Lee Roth, with Bon Jovi, and we're like, holy cow, they're playing the Spectrum, and things really took off for them. And um, they opened the doors, and after them followed Britney Fox, then us, Tangier, um, Ivory Tower bands. You know, they really cracked the door for the heavy metal bands in the area. Um, your question before about the metal. It wasn't that it was metal. It's just I always great, great gravitate towards the heavy guitars. And I don't know, even like now listening back, would you say Deep Purple was heavy metal? I guess they had a hint of it, but I like that crunch. I always like that crunch. And of course, when uh, Van Halen hit the scene, that was a life changer. You know, I was just like, whoa, what is this kid doing? <laughs> exactly. Now, now, with Heaven's Edge, how did you guys go about getting a record deal? Because I always say, you know, I talk to people and when I did comedy and, you know, when you did music, you know, we were we were never considered entrepreneurs, but we were because we were making our press kits. We were making our flyers. We were, we were doing our promotion. We did everything. And it's not like now there wasn't social media. I mean, you know, the Sunset Strip, people just to walk down and post yes. it up. And, you know, but yep. how did you guys start? OK, so you're at the Galaxy, which was a a haven. It was a metal haven. It was just it, it was yes. you, it, it put it as a place in history. So how do you go from a band who is at the Galaxy playing original music, 
to getting a record deal? What was, did, was it you guys? Was it management or what, what made you get that deal? Well, coming right out of the gates because Mark was famous, locally famous from network. I had a name for myself coming from White Fox. So the buzz was out right away. Oh, Reggie and Mark are putting together a band. Um, of course we filled it out with Dave, George and Steve and George had a good name and Steve, uh, Dave was going to Villanova at the time in college and he came in and just blew our socks off drumming wise. And we're like, that's the guy we needed. So right out of the gate, there was a nice buzz. I think our first three gigs were, um, empire, the galaxy and maybe Bonnie's and we sold out all of them just from word of mouth, just from word of mouth. So we had a good head start as far as name recognition. And we proceeded to work our asses off. We did 76 straight Friday or Saturday nights at the Galaxy. And um, just, you know, for 50 bucks, I think that's what we got. And we paid our road crew and sound and lights 150. So money was coming out of our pockets to play. But um, that's where we really honed our chops. Or we would do like the local circuit, like I was considered like Hammerjacks in Baltimore was a big club for us. Uh, York, Pennsylvania, we go out to Swizzles. We go up to North Jersey at Studio One. And just with that little triangle, or every time we went back, the first time we played Hammerjacks, I think there was like, it's a huge venue. I think there were like 25 people there. And that was including the bartenders and bouncers. <laughs> and uh, by the time, our last time that we played there, you know, we had we had the attendance record at one point. You know, we sold the place out. And so things, so we knew our name was getting big and things were really starting to take off. Now, over here in Jersey, there was an industry magazine called The Hard Report, and Bill Hard wrote this phenomenal write-up on us. These are the, this is the, the next Bon Jovi, blah, blah, blah. They have the choreography. They have the looks, everything. And we started record company showcasing um, for some of the labels, and we did this one showcase at the Trocadero. That was our room in Philadelphia, and um, we invited seven labels out to come see us. And um, our managers pop, popped in and they said, listen, guys, we'll be lucky one of the secretaries show up, you know, because that's just how it works. So don't be disappointed if nobody shows up. But through this article that Bill Hard wrote, the buzz was out on us and all seven labels came and not their secretaries, like the main guys, Jason Flom, John Marvos, um, Michael Kaplan from Epic. They, they were all there. We got... It was like a night of dream, uh, like dreams come true. We had all, seven verbal offers from all seven labels. They were like, you're, and they all knew each other. Z's from Atlantic, and Z's would be like, they're coming to Atlantic, and John Marvis would be like, they're coming with us to Columbia. And of course, we chose Columbia, which was the wrong decision. <laughs> why? But, uh, why was it the wrong decision? Well, at that time, Columbia only had Judas Priest, but they had. Um, like bands like, I guess, Bruce Springsteen, you know, like bands like that. Mariah Carey was a big signing that year, the same with us. And just as we signed with Columbia, I guess through, I think his name was Mickey Eichner or something, he left the label, the president left the label, and Donnie Einer came over from Arista. Donnie was uh, responsible for Whitney's success, along with Clive Davis, and came over to Columbia and loved Mariah Carey, rightly so, because she's phenomenal, and hated us. And as fast as it started that's how fast it ended and uh he just did not like us and he he did come see us uh at the cat club in new york and we went on to have one of our worst gigs ever i don't know we folded under pressure and um we had a two record deal with them and it was like two four six eight if they picked you up for three that we got to do album number four so we had done number album one 
and it had just come out and Donnie came over from um from Arista and said we need to start on album number two and right then we knew we were done because he was just trying to get us to fulfill our end of the agreement and um and get us out of there he um Austin Warren you know we had posters all over the the, the record company and you know, we come in, I hear Janie Lane telling the story, you know, where his Warren poster was now an Alice in Chains poster. And, uh, you know, and Donnie, to his credit, just he knew that the, the scene was shifting towards grunge. Um, and very sadly, with the night that we'd gotten signed to Columbia, this is backtracking a little bit, our bass player had gotten shot. Uh, some just disgruntled, disgruntled page patron you know was drunk and the bouncer was like get out of here and the guy's like i'm coming back and killing everybody this is back in 1989 you know and when shooting very sadly shootings are common now you know and uh um but back then you know they were not common at all and i get home from the it was um mmr had a nice party for us you know a record deal party i'd gotten home like two or three in the morning and i get the call that george got shot he came through the front door and you know, the guy had a sawed off shotgun um apparently sawed off means it goes, it sprays you. It doesn't put a big hole in you. And um, so he took, you know, 150, 175 pellets through his whole body. And uh, so the, the one thing out of that is, you know, we had medical, I think the first week he had $50,000 in medical bills. It was crazy. We thought he was going to die. But the whole rock and roll community, Cinderella to the Hooters to Tommy Conwell, like everybody was holding benefits to raise money for him, and which was phenomenal. And the record company came to us and said, our management said, we need to get another bass player. And we're like, no, we're not getting another bass player, you know? And they're like, the momentum is going. We got to capitalize on it. And we're like, no, nope, we got to wait for George. And in that time that we waited for George, um, grunge had started to creep in a little bit. And um, that little wait, you know, ended our little window. You know, I think had we come out a little earlier, and this is not to say it's even George's fault, because if we had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over exactly the same way, because that was the way to do it. And But that little delay really, um, you know, grunge had come in full force with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, you know, and so on. So uh, as fast as it started, it, it ended just like that. And so after we got dropped by Columbia, we went back to the other six labels, you know, thinking, oh, we can pick up with another label. We went to Capitol, and by then they were just like, you know, you were the band that failed with Columbia Records. You failed. You know, you were their priorities. Something's got to be wrong with you. But they didn't know the whole story, you know. And um, so we could not pick up a deal. We tried. To, so now venues that we were selling out, you know, 2,500, wherever, wherever we played, it was sold out. Now we're going back, and now there's 1,000 people. We go back again, there's 500 people. The road down was definitely ego busting you know but uh it um you know it definitely it definitely was much harder going down and it was it was much more fun going up <laughs> how but how do you deal with that i mean it's like anything you know and i was a performer and and we we perform because when we're insecure but we also have a little bit of narcissism and it's like it's like a weird yes, combination yes, yes. <laughs> but when you're going down how do you mentally deal with it because you know you're good because once again, you've had the big crowds. You had seven labels want you. How do you mentally keep your shit together when you're sitting there waking up going, wait a second, there's only 500 people there. I'm not a different Reggie. I'm still, I'm still a good guitarist. You know, I'm an excellent guitarist. How did you deal with that mentally? What was your, what did you go through at that time? 
I just think it was just a combination of, you know, I had a family. I was the only guy in the band that had a daughter and my wife and things were, you know, we got dropped in say 93. I was trying to get my teaching off the ground. Um, and so of course it hurt, it hurt, but I don't think we ever, I mean, obviously we all play because we want to be popular and we want to be stars or whatever, but you know, we, the guys in the band, we played because we love playing music. We love playing music. You could put us at the local bingo hall and we would put on the same show. Um, so I think maybe just always keeping that in perspective, you know, as it's not all about just like trying to be famous. Of course, we all, you know, at that time they had that show Cribs on MTV. And I'm like, wow, look at their houses, you know, and look at the guy from Nickelback, Nickelback's house and so on. And, you know, meanwhile, on days off, even when I had a record deal, I was cutting lawns and woodcrest, you know, because um, I had to make extra money. And then I started working for a company called Gutter Enclosures that kept the leaves out of the gutters and they needed end caps. I would bring a stack of metal on tour with us and drive the band crazy because I'd just be cutting end caps in the back of the in the back of the thing. And I'd get a dollar an end cap, you know, and we got what, $35 per team a day uh, for food. You know, I'd buy a loaf of bread and um, I'll pound the cheese and we had the George Foreman grill and I just make sandwiches and, you know, take that per diem and send it home. So it was never like, Oh my God, I'm rich. I'm famous. We never had that. So maybe that was good for us. So, but mentally, like, I guess you're right with the, you know, with the crowds, it's definitely deflating a little bit, you know, knowing that, wow, we used to pack this place and now there's nobody here to see us. But I guess it just comes with the territory. We were all, we never hit it so big that, that it was hard to come back down. We only went to here, so it wasn't that far fall, you know? Now, now the teaching, when did you decide to become a teacher? Because, I mean, everyone knows you now, but it didn't just happen overnight. You've built a business. That's the thing. I always talk to people about different businesses, and, you know, being a music teacher, it's a business, and you have to run a business, and you have to get popular. How did you start building that? When did you sit there and say, I can do this because you're a busy guy. I know I'm, I'm sandwiched between two lessons today. So right, right. how did, how did you start? When did you decide to start doing it? And how did you start to build your business? Well, my mom always had me teaching. I remember uh, when I was 15, 14 years old, I had my first student, Charlie Granito. I still remember him. And wait, wait, uh, Charlie Granito. Do you remember Charlie? He was, he is, he grew up with one of my best friends, Mike Colino. He grew up in Willowdale. And I think yes. he went He went to work for Ford. I think he went for Ford because I remember drinking with him down the shore years ago and I kept busting his balls the whole night because he was ordering like some like rum and cokes. I'm like, come on, get a real drink. But yeah, that's funny. Okay, Charlie. No Grineau. way. You got to tell him I said hello. I haven't talked to him. I'll tell Mike. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell okay. Michael that. <laughs> so he was my first student. And my, so my mom, you know, my mom was a classical piano teacher. So she had tons of students and she was always teaching me how to teach, you know, this is, so I had that in my background and, um, you know, my wife's father, um, was a big person at RCA. He was vice president at RCA of finance. He got me this terrific job at, at RCA, cut off all my hair and I just absolutely hated it. You know, we're wearing a suit and tie and like, I want to work every day. So I knew that that world was not for me. I'm not ever going to wear a suit and tie and go to work every day. And, uh, I remember being two minutes late and my boss chewing me out. I'm like, I got stuck in traffic. It's not like <laughs> I want to be two minutes late. And I'm like, it's two minutes. <laughs> like, stop it, you know? But back then it was all about clocking in at 8, 8 a.m., you know, and 
to win the full day. So I knew that I was not going to go back to working for anybody. So I, um, when the bands um, got dropped by the label, my manager said, hey, why don't you start teaching? At that time, I had you know a five-year-old daughter, a six-year-old daughter. I was the only guy in the band that had a child. It was Panic City. I was selling all my guitars for groceries. I had an endorsement with Ibanez, and um, I had all these custom guitars. I was selling them left and right just to make it. And then I ran an ad in a magazine called The Trading Times. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and it was of all like cars and automobiles and whatever. But in the back, they had a little music section. You could like looking for a bass player, selling an amp, you know, or whatever. It had a little music section in the back. And I just wrote Reggie from Heaven's Edge um, giving guitar lessons. And I got my first 17 students like right off the bat. And the best thing about social media is I'm still close with all those 17 students. You know, uh, we've all reconnected. And that was back in 93. And uh, to think that 30 years later, this is my 30th year teaching. That's insane. You know, that uh, it's 30 years now. And but from that little head start with the 17 students, I just kept building. I at the beginning had all rockers. You know, they all would just come in and just be like, let's shred, let's do that. But the thing with rockers is they're out touring. Their their financial situation is usually rough because that's the nature of the business. So I just geared myself more towards families. Um, you know, that way I knew I was going to get a paycheck every week. And, um, you know, of course, I'm going from teaching, uh, you know, Jeff Beck. Now I'm teaching Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know, but it's, uh, you know, definitely more steady of an income. And just through the years, me and my wife, we just love kids. So it was just a natural progression. I started teaching in Montessori. I was a Montessori um, music teacher. And that's with the real little ones. You know, they're 18 months to five years old. And that um, was wonderful. I love the kids. And it's just just to see the happiness that music brings them. And that's all I try to really focus on nowadays. It's just like, no, we're not going to try to. Of course, I'd love to create the next Eddie Van Halen. But with YouTube and all that, kids can do that themselves. I just want to pass on the love of music with these kids. And, um, you know, I just and that's all I've been doing for the last 30 years now. It's amazing. You know, it is amazing. And it's but it's once again, it's good business sense. You knew. You know, I, on my other podcast, I talked to Satriani. Satriani started off as a music teacher. Yes. And, and Steve Vai showed up at his house and said, I want to learn. So, all right. All right, all right and right. it was amazing. And, and, but he, and he really learned, you know, to sit there. He taught, but then he played every gig he got and he, you know, did that. But for you, you've really built a business and you've gotten a reputation, which makes make you feel good. Now, in the beginning, would any students feel intimidated because you are, Reggie from Heaven's Edge. Like if you're walking in and you, I mean, I saw you had posted on Facebook that uh, your wife got you a lesson with Joel Hoekstra, who I've yes, interviewed before. Yes. Now, and you and you were intimidated, and you you had a record deal. Like, did I mean? And Joel's great, you know. But I mean, you know, how did did you ever feel that students in the beginning, in the early days, were intimidated because you probably still had the crazy? Did you yeah, have the, the long? Crazy, yeah. yeah. So what was it like when you would get students? Did anyone come in and be like real timid? Like, oh my God, I don't yes. want to screw up. And, and No, and well, I still get that. But you know what? I think that is with any teacher. I remember having my lessons perfect. And then I'd go to my lesson. I took lessons at Russell School of Music over by uh, Wegmans. What's Wegmans? The Garden State Racetrack. And uh, Tom Jacobetti, you know, who's the most mild-mannered jazz guitar player in the world. I would get in front of him and barely be able to play my guitar because... You know, just you just want to be so good for your teacher. But I do get a lot from my students like, 
nowadays they're like you know when i first met you i was terrified i'm like you were terrified of me like why would you be scared of me and but even to this day kids come in or even i teach a lot of grown-ups they're like you know i had this perfect but now i can't play in front of you and, and i'm like i get it because i was there i i would go in front of tom jacobetti or dr trent you know with classical guitar and i could barely play because you know you, you just another level of panic sets in <laughs> now what's the difference between teaching a kid and an adult because kids are very you know they have no fear and they you can tell them do this and they're not they don't have the experience adults have been listening to music forever and they probably go well you know you probably get some people go right off the back oh no yeah i'm gonna play panama in a, in a second you know and you're like no no it's right, not that right, easy. Right, right. what is it what's the difference like how do you handle a, a young person compared to an adult who a lot of adults were set in our ways already um Believe it or not, the ad adults are just as panicked as the kids. I think that with the kids, they absorb it faster. With the adults, we're like just trying to survive the day by day. I have a lot of adults who come in and they're like, you know, I haven't touched the guitar since I last saw you. I haven't touched the piano since I last saw you. But I don't want to stop because if I stop, I'll never come back to it again. So with the adults, rather than focus on the, the basics of theory and like, that let's get you playing some songs, you know? And that just, you know, I have an adult band. I have all these, they're actually like all professionals, doctors, lawyers, and they didn't know each other. And we, I introduced them to all each other and we picked four songs, you know, uh, Born to be Wild or whatever. And we worked individually on these four songs. And then we went downstairs in my basement, I introduced them to each other. I was a drummer and I said, we're booking an open mic. And, you know, Ots down the street and my friend Billy runs it. And um, you should have saw the, the panic. They're like, oh my God. You know, I'm like, you guys, you're a plastic surgeon. You have nothing to be scared about. You know, it's a different panic. And um, we, you know, but uh, they went in and had such a great time that, you know, they've now done it, you know, 20 times over. You know, they go, they, they, every couple months we pick a new set of songs and we go down there and, and do it. Unfortunately, um, with, um, the quarantine and everything, it's kind of put a squash on things, but hopefully things are sort of opening up again, you know? Well, I, before we got on, we talked about during the quarantine, how do you teach, you have to teach on Zoom and FaceTime. How hard is it to teach someone? Is it easier to teach over Zoom or is it easier no. to teach in person? I mean, it must be so really hard. Easy. So yeah, so how did you acclimate to that? When you when you sat there and you went, I, I, I still have to make a living. People yeah, still want to learn music. How hard was it? Like you just look at someone and you, cause you can't, I mean, you can see, but how how was that for you? I mean, did it, that did, did that make you grow as a musician at all too? It, I don't know if it made me grow. It was definitely challenging. You had to you had to really slow things down, and you'd be like, you know, you I hold you put your first finger right here and your second finger right here, and then they put their finger up here. I'm like, no, damn, I just want to reach through there and fix it, you know. Uh, so in that sense, it's definitely more challenging. But I am so grateful that there was such a thing as zoom and facetime because when it well when it first hit um the government was saying it should only last about two weeks i'm like we can make it two weeks we got enough savings to make it two weeks little do we know that to this day it's still going on you know um so then somebody's like oh you should try zoom and i'm like zoom i love that tv show growing up you know <laughs> we're gonna zoom 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 on zoom you know and uh so um but thank god for that and uh it's really been a godsend that this the virtual teaching. 
I still prefer in person, but I think about half of my students still are virtual out of convenience. It's just easy for them. They don't have to worry about the mom doesn't have to worry about bringing Joey for the baseball game and getting Timmy over here for his lesson. You know, he just logs on and we do it together. And I document everything. I write the lesson down. You know, I scan it, send them the lesson. So it's almost exactly like being in person. The only thing is with the not so far advanced students, you it, it's more of a challenge because you, you're trying to fix things and you can't do it. Like if you were here, I would just put your hand there, curve your fingers the right way, and it would just be that easy. But through here, there, I'm like, no, look back here. My thumb is here. You know, it's a lot more visual like trying to explain things and same thing with the piano like i do a lot of piano teaching and uh so they i have the parents point the fingers at the keys but it's hard to tell so i do a lot of it by ear like whether they're trying to you know hitting the right notes you know so a lot of it's done by ear so you've been teaching for all this time but now the metal the hard rock is coming back and i know you played the, the big festival in maryland now all of a sudden heaven's edge is coming back and i mean what is that like like after all these years all of a sudden you're going holy crap like i know you guys before the pandemic and before it closed i know you played a big show at the truck and what is it the m3 festival you play is that we play the m3 and then the, the, the rock cruise yes we've done a bunch of monsters of rock cruises and so We're what is that there. like? What is that like? Because all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, you know, I've created this other life. I'm a teacher and now I'm getting to do what I love. Both things I love, teaching and playing live. How has that been? It's been mind blowing. So back in 2013 or prior to 2013, Kieran was running this festival in London called the Firefest, And he would call every year and he'd be like, we got to get you guys out here. And I'm like, why would we go to London to play? You know, we haven't played in 20 years now. And he's like, you've got to come out to London and play. So finally, 2013, we went out and played. And, you know, I don't know how big the venue was, two, 3,000 people. And they knew every word to every song. It was, we were like, oh my God, what the heck? We did a meet and greet. And they, they were like, they, they were like, you guys are rock stars. You mean you take out your own trash? And we're like, yeah. And like Monday, we're back at work just like you guys, you know, but you know, their perception is just totally, they, you know, they don't know. And, but we had such a great time. We said, listen, we'll do a couple of these festivals to, to a year that, you know, very, you know, we'll get to see, see things. And, you know, when am I ever going to get a chance to go to London? You know? So, you know, I brought my family and we just had a ball, you know, I went a week early and, um, Actually, next year, we're doing Germany, you know, like things I never got to experience. But then out of that gig, we started getting all these festivals and um, they started asking us and we're like, yeah, I mean, so I'm on the cruise. I'm in the, you know, the dining hall and I'm seeing, you know, the guy from Extreme eat and I'm like, oh, my God, he eats food just like me. Like, <laughs> like, like I idolize Nuno Betancourt, you know, or Joel Hulkster. You know, I was in an elevator with Joel. This is before I know him. And I was just like. Oh my God, he's standing right next to me. <laughs> and uh, so it's been mind blowing that we we get this opportunity at age 60. Are you kidding me? At age 60, I thought I was winding things down. And then during the quarantine, this label, Frontiers Records, they specialize in um, older bands. I have their list here. They have bands like, um, I'll read some of the bands they yeah, have. Yeah, John, John Freeman. Is that who it is? No, no, John Freeman's that does PR for Frontiers Record. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I know okay. I know uh, Chip's enough on with them. 
I know that. Much. Yes. Yeah. So they have all bands like Winger, Whitesnake, Trickster, Taikato, Ted Nugent, Rick Springfield, Booyester Colt, um, Jolyn Turner, Journey, Night Ranger. So they specialize in our genre of music. So they called us up and they said, um, we want to do another Heaven's Edge record. And I'm like, really? You want to, you want to, and, and we negotiated and, and we actually just finished a record last week. It just got mastered last week. We're looking for our first single to come out in January. Um, we're doing a local, our first local show in five years at the Brooklyn Ball in January, on January 21st. Uh, we thought it might be a record release party, but the way the industry works right now, you, you release one single and then as a teaser kind of, and then two months later, you release another single. And then when the third single gets released, that's when the album hits. It's like a lot different now, I guess. And um, so, but we'll, we'll release the first single in, in January. We'll do the local show. And like I said, we've committed to Europe. We've committed to M3 next year. So we might ramp it up from, you know, two gigs a year to maybe four gigs a year. So, um, but it's, it's, you know, there's a talk of us going out to Milan and playing the Frontiers Festival out in Milan next year, which would be fabulous as well. Now, what was it like, uh, real quick, um, what was it like writing again? I mean, were you writing the whole time? Were you creating yes. during, were you, yeah. did you keep writing originals? And even when you were teaching, did you sit there and for some reason you were prepared in the back of your head, you probably said, or it was just kismet that all of a sudden they said you you had the material because it would suck if they said we want you to do something and you guys were like oh well we didn't but yes. I, so was what has your music style changed and your writing style changed over the years and have you or have you staying to what made you guys a great band or have you said okay well this may not work in this in this climate now because people aren't loving this kind of music as much um well. For a good 10 years, I went to work for Shelly Yakis. Shelly Yakis is a world-renowned engineer. He done everybody from U2, Tom Petty, John Lennon, Imagine. So I went to work for Shelly, and he helped. He want, I was helping him develop bands, you know, whatever he needed. So I worked with these three girls. They were triplets, and we wrote, you know, we probably wrote 100 songs, you know, trying to get them a record deal. So I never stopped writing. Um, me and Mark always continued to write just because it was just fun. You know, it was a lot of, it's fun. So we never stopped writing. And like you just said, thank God we didn't stop writing because, you know, when this record company came to us, thank God we had some songs to go to. The problem now is it's a three album deal. So we got to come up with two more records. I don't know if I have that in me, <laughs> but we'll cross that bridge when, uh, when that, that comes up. But uh, so I never stopped writing. Me and Mark never stopped writing. I started a side band called Ever After with Jim Dernick, Christopher Thomas, and Buddy Cash. And we wrote songs together. So writing music is my passion. If I was like really rich, I would, that's all I would do is writing music. There's nothing better than take it from here to here to fi final product and seeing what people re react to it. You know, it's just such a, it's, that's what, my passion is. I love writing music. And um, and uh, so I've never stopped writing music. I, I have one final question for you. And it's funny. I asked, I asked an actor, uh, Patrick Fabian from Better Call Saul, you know, does he still love acting? Why does he love acting? So I'm going to ask you the same thing. Why do you love music? And expand on it. Why? I mean, is it just, it's been your life. I mean, that's your life. Everyone knows you, Reggie Wu, the guitarist. We, everyone, I mean, Cherry Hill, we all knew you back from when you were in high school. We all, oh, that dude's a great guitarist. The guys I've run into in bars in LA, they knew you. But why, what, 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 why do you love music so much? Well, when, you know, 
I'd say the last 20 years of my life, I, growing up, my mom had me playing classical music. I, not that I hated it. It was just not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go put on my Van Halen records, but, um, so for the last 20 years, you, you can ask my wife, I drive my family crazy. I am just obsessed with the classical piano again. I go down there, I, I, and now I'm just like reading. It's almost like therapeutic for me just to read. I'm like, holy cow, like how did Beethoven or Chopin write these songs? They probably wrote it by candlelight. It's like amazing. Just so I'm always like learning stuff and watching, reading the music rather than creating myself. And that for me, is just like, when you find master of peace, like I'm working right now on La Campanella by list, you know, it's like 20 pages. I'm on page five, but it's like my bucket list thing. Before I die, I'm going to hopefully finish the song, <laughs> you know, but um, it's just in me. I just live, breathe and die music uh, 24 seven. I go to, you know, Lisa's like my wife, she's like talking to me. She's like, you're not paying attention to me. You're doing something in your mind musically, you know? And I, I just, it's just always through me. I'm t always thinking about music, always thinking about, and it's, not, and that being, I'm going to be six years old in a month in, in, in a month in like a week, I'm going to be six years old. I, um, you know, I, I don't want to slow down because what's there to slow down? What's the reason for that? You know, it's just still fun. I still have a ball very sadly though, my body's breaking down on me. You know, I have arthritis in this hand. I can't hold a pick anymore. It hurts really bad. I have like this little bump here. It's bone against bone. I don't know if you can see it. It's bone against bone. I've been to two hand doctors. And, um, you know, I'm trying to hold off from having surgery. This hand's arthritic, so it just feels tight. Uh, I started getting tremors this summer. I'm like playing the guitar and my hand's shaking. I'm like, why is my hand shaking? stop you know and then i'll go get a cup of sugar um, a cup of coffee and sugars all over the counter so that in itself is kind of you know a little daunting and a little sad hopefully um you know if it ends it ends but you know i'll just keep going as much as i can because i truly love it i never did it for anything else other than the love of music and i really love it well that's awesome reggie i really want to thank you for coming on you know I, it's the last time i saw you I, I i think it was like a marlton day or whatever i saw you walking down the street but yes uh, yes now now how can uh how can people keep up with your career and what's going on is there a website is there a social media or how can they get in touch with you well i'm uh, obviously reggie will on facebook uh i do have an instagram i don't really know how to use it i do have a twitter i don't really use that so i for a long time especially when the political bashing was going on i just backed off of Facebook. I just couldn't, couldn't take the, like, this used to be fun. And now friends are like, hate each other. I'm like, come on, you guys are going to hate because I'm like, I get it. You hate Trump, but that's not what we're here for. We're here because we wanted to reconnect or whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, keep, but obviously people use that as their platform to bash, you know, the other side. I never even knew there was another side. I thought we were all in this together. You know, I, 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 I'm, you know, I, I, I've posted like a joke and, and I'm not, I keep, I keep way away from politics yes. on social media. And I posted a joke that it had nothing in my eyes. It was nothing to do with politics. The joke was, I said, I can't believe some people don't believe in COVID, but they believe in Bigfoot. There's nothing political about that. And my feet, I had to pull the post down because people were sending stuff. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, wait a second. It's a joke. But, yes. uh, but so now you're back on Facebook so they can get so, in touch. Well, with I went back on because now I got to pump up the record. So you can definitely get, always reach out to me there. Uh, Heaven's Edge does have several websites. 
Um, and uh, so they're always posting, especially now that things are getting going to start ramping up for the record next year. I'm sure we'll start to have them. We just, you know, set up our Heaven's Edge Instagram, Heaven's Edge Twitter. It's a whole new world out there. Like, I'm thank God we have people doing this for us because I don't have a clue <laughs> how to publicize things. So people, uh, go check them out. Go check out Reggie, uh, Reggie Wu, W-U, and check out Heaven's Edge. They're a great band. And uh, go listen to their old music and then get their new music. And uh, go to uh, the cooptank.podbean.com. You can find 18 episodes. Go to coopertalk.net. You can find I have 935 episodes. That's, Holy cow, that's, congratulations. That's, yeah, it's, it's been crazy. That's a lot of actors and musicians. This is more business-oriented. If you need a video made for your social media, come on down to Sweet Recording. I will interview you. You know, Joe will record it. My producer, Joe Ganjami, who is awesome, he'll he'll produce it for you. And, you know, and we, we give you a good rate. You can do that. And if you have a show and you need to get coached on how to interview better, hit me up. I've done a thousand of these things. I know what I'm talking about. So people, please check out Heaven's Edge. Check out Reggie Wu. Check out Sweet Recording, S-U-I-T-E, and go to the thecooptank.podbean.com. Dot com, or you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, or iHeart, and check out coopertalk.net. And I'm Steve Cooper, and you guys all have a wonderful, wonderful day. 